0: Good morning. morning. My name is Jim Mullins, I'm one of your pastors. It's a gift to be with you on this Sunday morning as we continue in our series in 1 John. Today we're gonna to be looking at 1 John 2, uh, chapter, uh, verse three through 11. I should probably know what those verses are. If you have a Bible, go ahead and take, them out, take it out and turn to 1 John chapter two. As I was thinking about this passage, I uh, took a little stroll down memory lane. This passage reminded me of something from when I was in high school. It was my sophomore year, and I was transferring schools. I was gonna go try to play football at a different school. Um, Hamilton High School. Anyone here go to Hamilton? Boo. Boo- <laughs> booing. Any? Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, Hamilton High School. I was there year one, the first year, and I am certain that that entire year was just a social experiment. (laughs) The school was just this, like, campus out in the middle of farmland. There was nobody who actually lived near it, and you were being bused in from different locations, and half the, the school, half the people in the school were really wealthy. They came from wealthy families, and half were broke. And I happened to fall into the broke camp. We realized we were going to this new school and that we were going to have to establish new social hierarchies. And we're going there with a bunch of rich kids and they're going to have nice clothes. And we didn't have nice clothes and we had a problem that we had to solve. You know, uh, I was embarrassed by not having money. I was embarrassed that I wasn't going to have the nice clothes and the nice, you know, accoutrements like they had, um, and I had one, one shirt, one nice shirt. You probably think I only have one shirt now because I <laughs> wear black shirts. Well, one nice shirt. I went to a wedding once, and for some reason, they had us wear like a gold silk shirt, and that was my one nice shirt, and I knew I couldn't wear it because it made me look like a combination between like Liberace and like a WWF wrestler. <laughs> So I had to figure out how was I going to show up and have clothes that looked like I had money. Fortunately, there was an answer. And for me, for all the broke folks, it was called Chandler Mart. Now, a few of you have been to Chandler Mart before. I could hear the chuckling A little bit of shame behind that, but here's what the deal is. Chandler Mart was the place where you could go to buy all of the knockoff clothes. It looked like the real thing, but when you looked closely, there was always something with the logo that was a little different, Uh, a misspelling, something that would just barely put it over the line of not being copyright infringement. You could go there, and if you wanted a pair of Nikes but you couldn't afford it, you could get a nice pair of Mikeys, right? (laughs) Instead of Tommy Hill figure, you could get Johnny Hill figure. Instead of cool water cologne, you could get cool river cologne, which was basically like 80% rubbing alcohol, right? (laughs) So that's where we would get our stuff. But over time, people figured out that there was a test that you could do. There were multiple tests to where you could figure out if this thing was authentic or not. The gold chains you would buy there would leave little green marks from the oxidation. (laughs) The letters would start to peel off on your shirts just on the corners. It looked like the real thing, but it wasn't. And there were tests to prove if it was counterfeit. And as we look at 1 John in chapter 2, What we see him doing is he's providing tests that that the believers, the the community could go through to see if their faith was authentic, if it was real, or if it was counterfeit. This was important because at that time, there were people who were leaving the church, leaving the community. And they were saying, I still follow Jesus. But there was something about them where they were abandoning very important parts of the faith things that were sin, they were saying are not sin. They were saying that you had to have these ecstatic experiences in order to truly know God. And John is speaking to a community of people who are probably wondering, am I in or am I out? Are those guys right? Or is it the faith that we followed all along? There were people who looked like Christians, but their faith wasn't real it was a veneer of Christianity and it's important for us as well because we need to take some time from time to time and ask ourselves are we clothed in Christ or have we put on the knockoff brand Christianity that just goes through the motions and our faith isn't authentic do we know things about the Bible but not the God of the Bible Do we try to do good things but haven't fully encountered the good that Jesus did for us? Are we in the church but not in Christ? Maybe trying to find a girlfriend or a positive place for your children but not actually relating to God. Is your faith authentic? John, 2,000 years ago, gives them A couple of tests to test the authenticity of their faith, and those are the same tests that we need today. So let's begin in verse 3. It says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word In him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we see the first test. The first test that John gives is the test of obedience. John starts with this blunt statement. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In other words, how do you know that you know him? How do you really know? When you look at your life, does it show a propensity to keep his commandments, to live in the way that he says to live? It's a simple concept. It says, if your faith is real, it will be marked by obedience or at least a desire to Obey the commands. Almost everything that John says here is echoing Jesus. And this is one of those moments as well. He's echoing the words of Jesus in John 15 when Jesus was giving this analogy and saying that Jesus was like this grapevine and that the disciples and his people were like branches. And that if you're connected to him, you will bear fruit. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's this idea that just like a a plant, that like a a branch, if it's connected to the vine, it's bearing fruit. If we are connected to the real relationship with Jesus, to his love, to his life, then it is going to bear fruit. And, And Jesus goes on to explain that that fruit is joyful obedience to the commands of the Father. He's saying, what is the difference between a lifeless stick in the ground and a real branch that is alive? It's fruitfulness. It's a life of obedience that takes God and his ways seriously. Evidence of a real authentic faith is a life that is committed to keeping God's commands and living in God's ways. Now, I want to take a step here and step back and be very clear about something. Some might be wondering, was this saying that obedience is what earns our way to God? Let me be very clear. No. The things you do and your works don't get you to God. It's Jesus and his works that get you to God. This is consistent with all of Scripture and it's consistent with John too. You know, this was a letter where you were going to read the whole book most likely, it would be publicly read to the churches then, and you wouldn't just focus on like the eight verses that we're, we're looking at here. And if you look in the context of John, even the verses right before these ones, it talks about Jesus is our advocate before the Father, that he's the one who paid for our sins, that he did the work that connects us to God and makes our faith real. It's not about our obedience. It's not about our works. It's about his works. But the evidence of a real faith, that 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 has happened, is a life of obedience. The next question might be, is this saying that if I ever disobey one command, if I sin ever, it's evidence that I'm not a Christian? I know that there are some folks with very sensitive conscience, and if they like cut someone off on the freeway and then like cuss, uh, then they're like, I'm clearly not saved, I'm out. No, let me be very clear. When he talks about keeping the commandments, it's this idea of guarding and protecting. It's not a perfect adherence because even John in the in chapter 1, he's assuming that we will sin and need to confess our sins to God that that is a part of the life of a believer struggling with sin, struggling to obey. But it's this Posture towards God's commandments that says that these are right, these are beautiful, I want to obey, I want to live in these ways. Now, I'm talking about obedience here, and I know that that's not a very popular word in our culture today. Like, it is a word that if, if in our day would just grate against your soul if you're influenced by the messages of Western society. Western society says, nobody's in charge of me. I am the, the captain of the fate, of my fate, I'm the master of my soul. Obedience, Where do, the only place we hear that word is when it's in relation to dogs in society. Uh, I got a, a new dog recently. And was trying to figure out how to get this dog to stop peeing all over my house. And so I started looking up some of the dog training stuff. And most of them talk about how do you get your dog to obey. But I kept running into these websites where even they were embarrassed by the word obedience. They were saying, we don't try to get our dogs to obey. But we're trying to give them a sense of freedom, not duty. And, you know, this oversensitivity. I'm like, they can't hear you. They can't read this. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But when we think of obedience, I think we can tend to think of it as God is this this divine dog trainer who's just trying to give us a list of rules, just trying to get us to comply so we don't annoy him and pee all over the house of his world, right? (laughs) We don't tend to love the idea of obedience, except in some places in life. There are a few places where we might not use the word, but we actually live into obedience because we know it is for our good and for our flourishing. One example would be like traffic lights. Uh, Pretty much most of us in here, maybe Warren Williams excluded, uh, (laughs) obeys the traffic lights on a (laughs) daily basis. Why? Why? It's not just that we don't want to get a ticket, it's that we know it is for our good, that the order that is created on the streets by traffic lights keeps us from running into each other, it allows us to thrive and flourish on the streets. When we obey those lights, we flourish And to obey the traffic lights is a way of saying that I recognize the authority of the Arizona Department of Transportation and that they know what's best on the roads, and so I am going to submit to that because their ways are right. In a similar way, when we obey God's commands, it shows that we recognize the authority of God, that we recognize that his ways are right. And that when we live within them, it leads to our flourishing. And that is evidence that our faith is authentic. That we say, your ways are right, and I'm going to live within that. Because we believe that he's the creator of the world and knows how the world ought to work. G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while I had established a rule and order, the, <clears throat> while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. That God's commandments provide an order to the world so that the good things, the right things can flourish. It's interesting that his commands even kind of fit the categories of traffic lights. You know, One example would be some commands are like green lights. They tell you to go. They tell you to do. Those would be the commands to forgive, to be generous, to be unified. Um, These are the green light commands. To the degree that we obey them, we thrive and we flourish. Let's just try that as a, a thought experiment. We'll just take one command. The command to build relationships and to be with those who are suffering. In Luke 14, Jesus says, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection. Of the just. These words align with so many other commands in scripture that say, move towards those who are suffering, build relationships with them, bring them into your life, into your community, and feast with them. What would it be like as a thought experiment if everyone in Tempe obeyed that command and listened to that and lived into it? What would life be like? Years ago, we partnered with the city of Tempe to do a needs assessment of what are the big challenges, what are the places of suffering in our community. And they named several of them. Uh, Individuals with mental health struggles, substance abuse, homelessness, people who've experienced domestic violence, people with disabilities or special needs, senior citizens who are alone and, and need help. And when you look through their report, what their conclusion is, is that all of these would be dramatically affected if people would embrace them and welcome them into their lives and community. What they needed was community to be invited to a feast. It is the brilliance of Jesus that if we all lived into that, it would eradicate like A big chunk of the suffering in our city. His ways are right. His ways are good. Some of his commands, you can think of them as yellow light commands. They're warnings to watch out for things. Watch out for false teaching, for greed, for bitterness. Let's just take greed as an example. Luke 12, 15. And then he said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Let's do that thought experiment. If we all were watching out for greed, what would that look like? How would it change things? Parents would spend more time with children because they would come home from work and not be chasing the next p- possession. ASU students wouldn't be overdosing on black market Adderall to try to get ahead of their competition. Fair wages would exist without a single rule changing because employers themselves would be on the watch out for greed and would give fair wages. His ways are right and they're good. Some commands are like the red light commands where he says, no, stop, don't do this. And these are the ones where we tend to be like, okay, I can get with the other ones, but I don't like someone telling me what to do and saying no but even these help us flourish. For example, the command to not commit adultery or even look at someone with lustful intent like it says in Matthew five. What would happen if the whole world embraced just that? That one's not very popular, but think about the ramifications. Pornography would plummet. Sex trafficking would disappear. Marriages would be filled with more security and intimacy. Men and women who aren't married would be able to build healthier relationships. Consider how many women struggle with insecurity with their bodies because they live in a world where this isn't pressed into and women are objectified and seen as objects of lust. How many children would be spared the suffering of seeing one of their parents walk away? from the family, because of an affair. You see, his ways are good, and they're right when we live into them, we flourish. Now you're probably thinking, well, we're not gonna get everybody in Tempe to just obey all these commands, right? Nice thought experiment. And it's true. We're not gonna experience the fullness of this here and now, but a day's coming in the future when Jesus will return, make all things right, and will live into the fullness of his kingdom. But in the meantime, his real disciples, his real followers live in such a way where on earth we bear witness to that day where we say that we are going to honor and keep his commands because they are good and they are right and they lead to flourishing. And as we experience this little pocket of flourishing, it points to that day when he'll make all things new. And so, one of the the evidences that your faith is real is how you interact with God's commands. Just as a traffic light brings order and flourishing to the streets, do you believe that God's commands and his ways bring right order and flourishing to the world? Do you see his commands as good and beautiful? Is your life marked by a pattern of obedience or at least a desire to grow in obedience or at least repentance when you fall short? If not, you are like a person who is running red lights, disregarding God's commands and showing that he is not the center of your life, he has no authority over you and your faith may not be authentic. It may be a counterfeit faith that looks like you you bought it at Chandler Mart. So, the obedience test. Then John gives us a second test. He says, along with general obedience, John is raising the bar and saying that there's one particular commandment that's the ultimate test of faith. So go ahead and jump into verse seven. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning, that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the commandment he's referring to here is the commandment to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. He's not saying explicitly here, but they know, they understand as soon as he starts talking about love, what he is referring to. And in a sense, it's an old commandment because it has been around since Moses. This was the core of the faith of God's people. The whole law, Jesus said, would be summed up in this idea of loving God with everything and loving your neighbor as yourself. So the the test The standard is love. He goes on to say, whoever is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, what's happening here is John is saying whether your life is marked by love or by hate is the most significant indicator of whether your faith is authentic or counterfeit. He's setting up a contrast between light and darkness. He says light represents those who actually know God, who've had an encounter with him and his love, and it plays out. It's proved true and authentic by living a life of love. Darkness represents those who don't know God, and it's it's proven to be darkness by a life that lacks love, especially for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's hostility toward them, either in really overt ways or in the subtle, contemptuous ways that we tear each other down. The most significant test of your faith is, is it marked by love? Love. Is it marked by love? Now, what's interesting here is that there's almost nobody who would disagree that love is important, right? Every motivational poster, self-help book, you know, R&B song (laughs) is going to agree that love is good. But it begs the question, how do you define love? And John actually gives us a great definition. You see, when he is saying these words, he's, he's repeating, when he's talking about the new command, he's basically thinking about, in John 13, when he was sitting there and he heard Jesus say, I'm giving you a new command, which is to love one another. And there was nothing new about it. But then he said, to love one another as I have loved you. That the definition of love is not anything that you will find in a dictionary, but it is defined in the life and the person and everything about Jesus. And when you look at him, you get the living, breathing definition of love. And for John, this wasn't just hypothetical. This was something he had seen and encountered. If you look at the moments just before Jesus says, here's a new commandment, love one another. And the moments after, they give some of the best examples of love. Just before Jesus said that, he washed the disciples' feet. And it's easy for us to try to imagine that, but John remembered it. He would have remembered Jesus coming over to him The one who had rescued him, who had healed the blind, who had turned water into wine, the one who came representing the very voice of God, was God in the flesh, came over and knelt down and washed the grime and the mud off of his feet, showing this is what love is like. And then a few days later, he would have an even more defining experience as he watched Jesus bleed out on the cross, willingly moving toward the cross to show the the deep love that he had for his people, paying for their sins, dying for them. And as he watched in horror, he would learn that that is actually the definition of love, that love is about self-giving, of pouring out your time Your your energy, your resources, your emotions for the sake of another. And Jesus exemplified it perfectly. Where does this love come from? If you are going to press into this type of love, it has to come from a deep encounter with the love of God. This isn't something that just comes from trying harder. Verse 5 and 6 But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John is saying, if you have a real, authentic encounter with Jesus, and you're abiding in him, you're encountering his love, You're receiving love that comes from him and it is transforming you in a way that walks like Jesus walked. An encounter with the love of God is transformative and it leaves our lives different in some identifiable way that makes us look like Jesus. Love, God's love toward us transforms us and changes our actions. I'll tell you, a few about when I was 20 years old. I lived with uh, a roommate. I mean, I lived with like eight roommates, but there was one I had in mind. His name was Frank. Frank always slept on the couch. I think he got a discount. I don't remember, but he got a discount to on the rent to sleep on the couch. And. Who's ever had the feeling that, like, someone's breaking into your house? Like, you hear some sound and it spooks you, right? I think everybody has. Well, one night, I'm, like, 20 years old, and I hear someone, like, trying to get in through the window, trying to get in through the door. It's in the middle of the night. And how do I respond? I didn't do anything. (laughs) I just laid there. I just rolled over and went to sleep. Why? Because I knew Frank was right by the door. And if he breaks through the door, well, he's going to beat up Frank first. And I'm going to hear Frank yelling, and then I'll need to know if I need to fight. Turns out it's just a drunk guy trying to come into the house. So I was right to sleep, right? <laughs> Years later, probably a decade later, I'm in my house with my wife and my daughter. And I hear in the middle of the night three of the loudest bangs I've ever heard. Bang, bang, bang. And before I could even process what was going on, I had jumped out of bed and was sprinting into the hall. My my fists were balled up, and I was sprinting and was ready to fight whatever it was in that moment. What is the difference between Frank and my daughter and my wife? (laughs) The difference is love. I had a lot of like for Frank. (laughs) But the love of knowing them and being so closely connected to them and experiencing their love absolutely changed the way that I would react in that moment. It would throw me in the living room to where I didn't know what was on the other end of that, but I was swinging punches like wildly into the air because I didn't want it to harm my family. Turns out it was actually, it's kind of embarrassing, one of those tin birthday balloons had, had just floated into the ceiling fan. Uh, uh. But that's not the point. The point is, if that balloon had tried to harm my family, it would have been in for something, right? Love is transformative. So when we... When, when we have experienced the love of God, it should, if it is an authentic faith, be displayed in love towards others, towards those in God's family. That, that, that our life changed, the way we react changes. What does love look like? It looks like generosity. The willingness to give of yourself for the sake of another. You can't just do that without having experienced generosity yourself. What does love look like? It looks like kindness. And the kindness comes from encountering the kindness of God. Therefore, we extend that kindness to others. What does love look like? It looks like forgiveness and reconciliation. When we have experienced God bringing us near when we were his enemies and saying, I love you, you are now my children. That experience of forgiveness and mercy changes us into people who extend forgiveness and mercy. And if we find a life that is lacking generosity, that is lacking kindness, that is lacking forgiveness and reconciliation, often that is evidence that we haven't had a deep enough encounter with the love of God. Love is the test that shows if our faith is authentic, if if we have put on the garments of Christ, or if we are wearing the knockoff imitation that comes from the world. Obedience and love. When you take your faith, Through the lens of obedience and love, what do you see? This is hard. This is a hard text to teach and preach. Jake picked the easy ones last week. (laughs) And I don't want to skirt around it, that there are actually people who name Jesus, who say they follow him but might not be. And it's something that we have to wrestle with. I want to take a step back and just kind of speak pastorally here, especially to a few pe- types of people in the room that I'm, I really have been praying for. One type I would call the too insecure. Um, these are sensitive people with a sensitive conscience. And, you know, the moment that they feel like one bad feeling, they're like, immediately, I'm not a Christian. Is the person who, who is saying, like, if I didn't have, like, a certain emotive feeling or a certain, like, powerful experience, then maybe I'm not a Christian. If I didn't have this powerful testimony, then maybe I'm not a Christian. And you're just always wondering, is it real? Is it not? Am I real? Am I not? And I just want to say to you that actually these words should be an encouragement to you. They were written to be an encouragement and give a sense of assurance, some of the Gnostic cults of that time were likely uh, had been formerly associated with the church in Ephesus, but were now saying that you had to have some ecstatic, mystical experience to know if you were really in the faith. And people were likely doubting if they were or not. But what it's saying here to them is that your faith isn't dependent on your feelings or an experience or some ecstatic vision that you have but it's dependent on the work of Jesus on your behalf. And and a simple faith, a simple faith that just says, I just love God, trying to love other people, trying to obey his commands, is enough. That itself is a beautiful thing that is evidence that you have encountered God and you don't need any other experience. I want to challenge you, if that's you, to plunge yourself into the love of God, to allow his tenderness to remind you of all that Christ has done for you and that your security is in him and in his work. And not to torture yourself all summer long wondering if you're saved or not, because when you do that, you leave no time left in your mind and your heart. shift toward God. You just collapse into self-introspection. Rather than doing that, run to God and encounter his love and his forgiveness for you. And remember that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Rather than burying yourself in endless introspection, plunge yourself into the love of God. But there's someone else I want to speak to as well. That's the person who's too confident. You may be very involved in church. You may have gone to a Christian school. You may listen to Christian music. You may go to Chick-fil-A and eat Christian chicken nuggets. (laughs) And have decals on your car. And it doesn't mean anything in regards to the authenticity of your faith. If you have a life that lacks love and disregards God's commands, His ways and has is living in some unrepentant, habitual sin that you're just okay with in your life, you've just decided it is fine for me to live in a different way than God has commanded, and I'm just fine with that, then you should not be so confident in the authenticity of your faith. It may be that you have the veneer of Christianity, but not put on the clothing of Christ. I've seen this in the, the person who is almost committed to their habitual gossip and slander and never even sees it as an issue to repent of. Or pride and arrogance that says, you know what, I'm just someone who tells it how it is. Don't be so confident that you've actually encountered the love of God. Or this is the one that breaks my heart is when when someone commits adultery and says, well, this just feels right. Of course, God would want me to be happy. This just feels like it's the right thing. And so of course, God wants this for me. Don't be so confident. Reflect, look at your life. See if this, this faith of yours is authentic. And my challenge for you is the same. Plunge yourself into the love of God. Because oftentimes what you're gonna try to do is convince yourself that your sin isn't that bad. You're gonna shift your focus away from it. You're gonna try to ignore it because you believe, you don't believe that God's mercy and grace is big enough to handle even that ugly part of your life. And it is, it's infinitely bigger than that. Don't downplay your sin and hide, but remember that God's kindness leads us to repentance and plunge yourself into knowing and reflecting on the love of God and encountering a liberating sense of forgiveness you might actually be stepping into a real and authentic faith that is is so good as you experience what actual love is towards you. I want to speak to another person in here. It's the person who doesn't know Jesus and is kind of trying things out and is wanting to learn about Jesus but sees a lot of hypocrisy in Christianity and Christian leaders and those sorts of things. I want to speak to you and say, there is a counterfeit, inauthentic faith that exists, and its purpose is to distract you from Jesus and the real love of God. What I want to say to you is plunge yourself into the love of God. Immerse yourself and be reminded in all that Jesus has done for you and His love towards you, and let that be what draws you to Him. Finally, I want to speak to all of us in between—that there may that most of us actually have a real, authentic faith, but there are parts of our life that we haven't really brought into the light, or parts of our life that may not be as authentic. And you, and you acknowledge it, and you want to grow in it, and you believe what 1 John 1, nine says, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to you, I want to say, plunge yourself into the love of God. Rather than just only trying to find the tricks and the gimmicks to stop doing that sin, be so immersed in the love of God that it transforms your life. When you step back and read 1 John in a the whole, there's one thing that you can't get away from. It is the invitation to everybody in every circumstance to immerse yourself into the love of God. And that's what we're gonna do as we come to the table. Come to the table and take communion. And let this be a tangible reminder of the real and authentic body and blood of Christ that was given for you, that you would come to know his love. As you come to the table, remember that Jesus's obedience is what saved us rather than our obedience. His obedience brought him to the cross where he gave his body and his blood. It was his love that compelled him to suffer for us. So as we take the wine in remembrance of his shed blood and take the bread in remembrance of the body that was given for us, know that as much as we need to reflect and ask if our faith is real and authentic, the bigger question we need to ask is, is Jesus's body and blood real and authentic? And as we take the the bread and the wine, we make a declaration that yes, it is. He is the real. Let's pray. God, we pray for just a sense of uh, your attentiveness towards us now and that that would be the very thing that shifts our attention to you. Whatever circumstance we're coming into, God, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as we really are and really, truly reflect. But we also pray that you would help us uh, to see you with even greater clarity. We respond to your love and your kindness and who you are to us as our great advocate and the one who forgave our sins in this moment now. Amen.